0: I don't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. Ever heard that one before? I certainly have. It's one of the most common excuses that people use for not going to church. Unfortunately, there's often a significant degree of truth in that criticism. Our lives don't match our words. We speak holy words and live unholy lives. We go to church to look nice, act holy, talk spiritual, but we often speak empty words that are not matched by how we live. And when that happens, we are hypocrites. A hypocrite is a person whose life does not match his words. The preacher in Ecclesiastes, in chapter 5, where we pick up our study this morning, warns us about this very reality in the worship and the religion and the religious activities of his own world in his day. And he warns us to watch our words, what we say, what we claim. And he tells us that the fear of God guards our lips. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 1 begins, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. He's talking about going to the temple to worship. He's talking about all of the religious people there in Israel going to worship God. And then down in verse 7, he ends this little section by saying, commanding really, rather fear God. So in between the guard your steps as you go to church, as you go to the temple, so to speak, and the fear God at the end are four principles about how our words are supposed to match our actions or, turn the other way, how our lives are supposed to match what we claim. We need to watch our mouths by fearing God in worship. That's the motivation. The fear of God, as we seek to really honor Him, guards what we say to make sure it matches how we live. So first of all this morning... He tells us that we are to come to worship with a listening heart. Come to worship with a listening heart, not a talking mouth. Chapter 5, Ecclesiastes, verse 1 Guard your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Draw near to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools. In their book, Unchristian, author David Kinneman highlights a number of troubling statistics from an extensive study that was done by the Barna Research Group of Americans basically in their 20s and 30s today. And included in those statistics are two that show how the The people outside of the the church, how they view those who are within, those of us who go to church. Nearly 9 out of 10 young outsiders, 87% to be exact in this survey, said that the term judgmental accurately describes present-day Christianity. Of the non Christians surveyed in this study, 84% said they personally know at least one committed Christian. So they know people who are following Christ. And yet just 15% thought the lifestyles of those Christ followers were significantly different from the lifestyle of the rest of our culture. 15%. No Christians, but they're no different. Than the rest of us. In other words, most 20s and 30s today in America, looking at those of us who go to church, who claim to follow Christ, would say that our lives don't match our words. They are turned off on church because we don't live what we claim to live, our walk does not match our talk. Well the same, same problem existed in Solomon's day for the nation of Israel. They were going to the temple of God to worship God. They were very religious but far too many he says were offering the sacrifice of fools. They don't even understand what they are doing. They don't even realize how wrong it was. Now What was the sacrifice of fools that he is talking about here? Listen to the words of Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah we read, When you come to appear before me, God is speaking, Who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings, foolish offerings. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. So there were many in Isaiah's day who were worshiping God, very religious in their observance of that worship at the temple, but they were living sinfully away from the temple. Their lives didn't match their claims. They made great claims with their mouths about being holy and spiritual, but they didn't live as God wanted them to live. And God says their religious sacrifices, all the stuff that they were doing in the temple worship, all those sacrifices they were bringing were meaningless, were empty, were foolish. The sacrifice of fools then means... Not that there was some particular sacrifice that was wrong, the thing that they were doing. The sacrifice of fools meant that they were performing all of the right religious rituals without any heart that obeyed God. They were very pious, they were very religious, without hearts that honored him. They were selfish, they were sinful the rest of the week, while holy and pious on the Sabbath. And God says He cared nothing for their religious hypocrisy. Their sacrifices were the sacrifices of fools. In Luke 18, Jesus told the story of a Pharisee and a tax collector coming to worship at the temple. And the Pharisee stood there in the temple and he said, God, I thank you. I'm not like the rest of these people here. I'm not like this poor tax collector over here. I pay my tithes. I fast regularly. I worship you and do all of the things that you want. Thank you, God, that I'm not like these common sinners. And the tax collector came and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said the tax collector went away justified rather than the Pharisee because it's the heart that matters. We can be religious for show, but it's an empty show as far as God is concerned. But it's a huge temptation for us in church life. We can go to church, We can talk our church talk. We can do our church rituals. Participate in our church programs. But it's all the sacrifice of fools. If our hearts have not come to God in humility and repentance. Seeking forgiveness and mercy. We're just like the Pharisee. Now, that's a huge problem for Christians. Because it is so easy to fall into the trap of churchiness. You know what I'm talking about. It is so easy to fall into the trap of churchiness and think we are growing in holiness. And God doesn't care anything about our churchiness. Notice what the preacher says in verse 1. We are to draw near, when we come to the house of God, we are to draw near to listen. To listen, rather than to offer our rituals. When we come to worship, we we are to come first to listen to God, not to get others to listen to us. We live in a narcissistic culture. And so everything we do, we think ought to revolve around me and meeting my needs. And God says, when you come to church, come first to listen to God. That's the priority. Not to get others to pay attention to you or to listen to you. The Hebrew word translated listen here is a word that meant to pay attention to God. So we're to come to pay attention to Him, not to get others to pay attention to us. It meant to listen so as to obey. It it sometimes even was translated to obey God. To pay attention to God to the point that we are going to follow what He says. We are going to live as He wants us to live. We are going to submit to His authority over our lives. And we go to church first to pay attention to Him. Listening is obeying. So as we come to church, we need to cultivate a listening heart for God. It's not about us, it's about Him. We are not here to impress others, or we're not here to impress God. Because God isn't impressed by our churchiness. Not a bit. We are here to listen to God. We are here to seek His will for our lives. We are here to pay attention to His word. And to surrender to his authority. And if we don't come to listen first, then our sacrifices, all the stuff we do in church, that's the stuff of fools. It's the sacrifice of fools. We don't even understand how silly and wrong it is, no matter how good it might seem to be. It's meaningless. So how do we cultivate a listening heart as we go to church on Sunday mornings? Now, you know as well as I do that you come to church and on your way, life has been full, right? There's all kinds of stuff happening in your lives just like mine, full of all of these distractions. Our minds are going all over the place. The way to cultivate a listening heart as we go to church is to... Kind of do away with those distractions and tune our hearts to God, prepare ourselves for Him and His Word in worship. But most of the time, what happens? <laughs> We're headed off to church. And we're rushing in. Maybe we're a little late. Stuff hasn't gone right. There's all kinds of things we're thinking about. There's 101 things left to do later today. The Patriots are playing this afternoon. The Steelers played last night. God bless them. They made it. Life is full. And so we're rushing into church on Sunday morning. And our minds are going 101 different ways. And we're not even ready to listen to God. About now, hopefully you are. (laughs) We spend so much of our lives multitasking, right? That we think we can worship God the same way we do that. And all of those other things. And the truth is that we are fools if we think that multitasking works with God and the worship of God. For that matter, it's foolish in terms of our lives in general. I was reading a study, according to a team of researchers at Stanford University recently, multitasking doesn't work. causes big problems. A Stanford University News Service article announced the study this way attention multitaskers if you can pay attention that is your brain may be in trouble the researchers originally set out to discover what gave multitaskers their special focus they thought they would find out why they were so produ- they could be so productive doing all of these different things you know what they were surprised to find out they weren't productive at all They were surprised to discover that in many ways, multitasking actually impairs performance. So while people think they're good at juggling multiple tasks, they're actually terrible at it. For instance, heavy multitaskers are suckers for distraction and for irrelevancy. According to one of the researchers, everything distracts them. Multitaskers were also more or more unorganized, in their ability to keep and retrieve information than those who didn't. They were even worse at the main thing that defines multitasking, switching from one task to the next. Heavy multitaskers underperformed in almost every area of the study. Great. You've seen the commercials, you know, about the Internet and how it... uh, destroys your brain because you're constantly distracted by all of the things that are going on. Well, folks, we are fooling ourselves especially if we think we can multitask in our worship with God. If we think that we can come to God and give Him a peace while we're handling all this other stuff, we're foolish. Why? Why? God doesn't want a piece of you. He doesn't want your worship piecemeal. It's the sacrifice of fools. He wants you. He wants all of you focused on him and listening to him. And it's the only way to truly honor and fear God with our lives. Otherwise, it's hypocritical. So we need to set aside all those other distractions. We need to come to God with a listening heart, seeking Him and Him alone in worship. I try on Sunday mornings to set aside time before I ever come to church to pray, to talk to the Lord. This morning, that time got a little short. And I came saying, Lord, I'm distracted by way too much in my life coming to worship. I'm coming into the presence of Almighty God. So the first principle is come to worship with a listening heart. What is it you want to teach me? You have to do the same thing. What is it, Lord, you want to teach me from your word? Second principle. Do not pray to impress Do not pray to impress. Chapter 5, verse 2. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. Don't be hasty or impulsive with your words. Now, that's certainly good advice for life in general isn't it We need to think before we speak and watch our words carefully I certainly have said things over my in my life that I've later regretted saying It's not good So it's a good idea to be careful with our words and not rush into saying things we'll later regret. But this verse isn't really talking about that, though that's good advice. This verse is not really an exhortation about watching our words in general. It is a statement about prayer in particular. The verse is dealing with holy talk that makes up our prayers. Notice that the verse is referring to the words we use When we bring up a matter in the presence of God. That's prayer. When we bring stuff to God. When we talk to God. When we bring up an issue or a matter in the presence of God in worship. This is prayer talk. Not general talk that he's referring to. This is what we say when we are talking to God. Not talking to others. Now. This is a huge problem for church people. When we talk to God, too often we put on airs. And it leads to the accusation of hypocrisy. We start talking in a sort of God talk, as if we can impress God with our words. You can't impress God with your words. I don't care how eloquent you become. I tell you, this is an occupational hazard for preachers because oftentimes we're the designated prayers, right? Well, pastor, will you pray? And it can become an occupational hazard for preachers because we can easily begin to develop sort of a God talk in our public prayers. I suppose it's one of the reasons why I struggle so much with public prayer I mean nobody wants to pray in front of a bunch of people like on Sunday morning and sound stupid right I mean you don't want to do that so you want to think through how is it I'm speaking I'll... but it's hard because it can start to sound sort of pious too and we can start to use certain expressions that come out good in prayer right And there's a fine line between talking to God and trying to impress others with our talking to God. The second is hypocrisy. Because prayer is simply talking to God. He wants us to talk to Him. And that's all prayer is. All right, even more important perhaps, is the matter of rushing into God's presence and sort of blurping out whatever we want as if God exists to meet our every need. And as if God can be influenced by lots of words, right? If I just talk long enough, God will do what I want. I remember going to a church in Philadelphia and the associate pastor would have the, the, the pastoral prayer on Sunday mornings. <laughs> we were college students, so we're prone to sarcasm, but we sarcastically called him our favorite access to the throne of grace because he prayed such long And pious prayers, we wouldst that thou wouldst bless us as our housewives as we go about our daily and wonderful tasks in the service of the matchless king. And he'd go on and on and on. In fact, I timed him once. (laughs) I was a Bible college student, you know. Twenty minutes he prayed. Twenty minutes in a pastoral prayer that Sunday morning. I wasn't really talking to God too much myself through that prayer, was I? We think that all this God talk will make God listen. It doesn't work. As a former professor of mine liked to say, many prayers have a diarrhea of words and a constipation of thought. How should we pray? He tells us. He tells us here, let your words be few. Let your words be few. God is in heaven. You're on earth. Stop trying to impress God with your God talk. As we daydream, he says, we have lots to do. And yet we're daydreaming. The, the Hebrew here is a little hard to translate, so I'm going to paraphrase it for you. As we daydream, even though we have lots to do, we're spending our time daydreaming just as that happens. So the fool talks with many words when he ought to get to the point with God. Well, Jesus said the same thing to us about prayer in Matthew 6. He said, Look, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. Why? Because your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He's not impressed with all that talk that we call prayer. In other words, stop boring God to death with your prayers. We can't impress God with our God talk. I like what the famous evangelist D.L. Moody once said, a man who prays much in private will make short prayers in public. (laughs) The temptation in the church world is to talk in pious ways that make others think we are spiritual when we are not. It's the problem of the Pharisees, too, that Jesus addressed so often in the New Testament. The Queen Mary was the largest ship to cross the oceans when it was launched in 1936. Through four decades and the World War, she served until she was retired, anchored as a floating hotel and museum in Long Beach, California. Well, during the conversion, her three massive smokestacks were taken off to be scraped down and repainted. It's going to be a museum now and a restaurant. On the dock, when they got these huge smokestacks onto the dock, they just crumbled. You know Why? There was nothing left of the three-quarter inch steel plate that had made up the stacks. They were nothing but paint. It was all just the coats of paint that had covered these smokestacks. Everything else just crumbled into nothingness. The steel had rusted away. When Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, that's about the picture he had in mind. You're nothing but a coat of paint. There's no reality there. That's hypocrisy. No substance, just exterior appearance. How often does that come to characterize churches and church people? We paint it well, don't we? But is there reality? Here's a good rule of thumb. The more we talk about our spirituality, the less spiritual we are in reality. So let's watch our words carefully. Third principle this morning. Keep your promises to God. Keep your promises to God if you want to avoid hypocrisy. Verse 4. When you make a vow, a promise to God... Do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you promise, pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So here's the third kind of church talk that leads to hypocrisy. One of the things that people outside the church notice about church people is that we are prone to make promises to God that we don't keep. Well, in the Old Testament, they were prone to make promises to God too. And they were prone not to keep those promises as well. Religious people have this tendency to promise God lots, but deliver very little. We talk big, but our walk doesn't match our talk. The Israelites would make vows to God anytime time they were in trouble, right? So that God would get them out of the jam. God, I'll do this. God, I'll do that. Just deliver us from our enemies. And God would deliver them from their enemies and they would promptly forget the promises that they had made to God. God says, look, if you make a promise to me, keep it. Pay what you promise to pay. It would be better for you not to promise at all. Not to promise in the first place than to promise and not keep it. Don't make commitments to God you don't intend to keep. It's better not to make the commitment in the first place, God says. Because if we make those promises we are religious and we're very pious and we make those promises but we don't keep them then we are hypocrites and our lives don't match our words. Jesus said the same thing to the people in his day. He said again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago do not break your oath, your vow but keep the oaths, the vows, the promises you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all Either by heaven, for his God's throne, or by earth, for his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. I promise you, God, on the hair of my head, probably go bald then. See, so you can't even promise God these kinds of things unless you're going to keep them. So... It's better off to let your yes be yes and your no be no and just keep your word to God. False promises turn us into hypocrites. So if you make a promise to God, and sometimes we do, don't we? If you make a commitment to God, follow through on it and keep that commitment. For it would be better that you didn't do it at all. Craig C. We'll just use his initial had been an alcoholic for more than a dozen years. He'd lost everything he had, including his wife, his son, due to his selfishness and his addiction. Things began to change after he gave his life to Christ. But he still fell regularly back into his old habits with the bottle. It didn't help that he'd lost his well-paying job and he was now clerking at a local grocery store that was well stocked with all his favorite alcohol. The temptation was there constantly. And After a few years of going back and forth between Christ and the bottle, he finally cut his ties, and, and in obedience to Jesus Christ, he quit his job because the temptations were there way too much. With no income, And hope only in Christ he was in a desperate situation. And after an interview with a sheet metal company down the street from his new church where he was going, he cried out to God. He said, God, if you give me this job, I will give you my first paycheck. Now he's made a promise. Surprisingly, guess what? He got the job. He clearly remembers the day when he got his first paycheck from that job and he had stacks of bills to pay because he was behind and he didn't have any money. He says he endorsed it over to the church and he didn't wait for Sunday. He walked to the church office and he handed it in so that he wouldn't be tempted to spend any of that paycheck. And that was the moment, Craig says that changed his life because now he understood what it meant to trust God. As of today, Craig has been sober for 25 years. He's the manager of that sheet metal company and he serves as an elder in his local church. Keep your promises to God. Finally, this morning, do not make excuses for your failures. Do not make excuses for your failures. Verse 6 Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. A woman was working one night in a honey-baked ham store. The store was equipped, as most of these are, with security cameras. And it was her job to watch the small black and white monitors that were covering the store. And she was surprised to see a woman who came into the store. She walked down the handicapped ramp, went between the shelves, and to the clerk's amazement, the woman grabbed a ham off the shelf and she stuffed it up her dress between her legs. And then she began waddling to the (laughs) door with this ham between her legs. And the clerk was wondering, what do I do? This is crazy. And as she got to the... The ramp, the metal handicraft ramp that went to the front door, as she started up that ramp, she lost the ham, and it hit the floor, and it went rolling down the ramp with a loud clang, and the woman turns, and she says, who threw that ham at me, who threw that ham at me, and she ran out the door. We live today in a culture of excuses. We can always make excuses for our behavior. It's not my fault. Who threw that ham at me? My mother made me do it. Don't blame me. I'm just doing the best I can. Well, it's true in church as well. In fact, in many ways, we church people can succumb to the excuse bug even more than others because we so much want to be and to look holy that we can quickly get into the tendency to excuse our unholiness. The preacher says, look, don't let your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Now, we're not entirely sure who this messenger is here, but we suspect that it's probably a temple representative in the context of their culture and that this temple representative would go and check on people who were worshiping at the temple to make sure that they were fulfilling their promises to God. And when the temple representative came to the person the person would make excuses for not following through on their commitment to God by saying, oh, oh, I'm sorry, it was a mistake. I didn't mean to do that. I just made a mistake. Now, here's the thing. We churchy people tend to make quick promises. We make commitments to God in church. I mean, 80% of the songs we sing if you look at the words, our promises to God. They're commitments we're making. But we don't follow through on our commitments very well. And then we compound the problem by making excuses when we're caught in failure or caught in sin. And nothing is more hypocritical than the tendency to excuse our sin by claiming it was a Mistake. I made a mistake. That's not repentance at all. So often when we're confronted with our sin, our failure to obey God after, after we've committed ourselves to obey Him now, we then say something like, I know it was wrong, but here's why it happened. I disobeyed God And what he says in the Bible, but you have to understand my circumstances. You know what? Every time we say but, we've just made an excuse, haven't we? And it's not genuine repentance. We nullify the repentance when we say but, we're making excuses for our failures. And That's the height of hypocrisy. No wonder people look at us when we do that and say they're hypocrites. They claim, but they don't live it. It's the height of hypocrisy to, make, to talk with holy words but make excuses for our unholy behavior. Sin is not a... Mistake. Sin is sin. Poet John Dunn wrote, Sleep with clean hands, either kept clean all day by integrity, or washed clean at night by repentance. That's a great statement for us Christians. Integrity, of course, is the opposite of hypocrisy. The word integrity comes from the word integer, which refers to a whole number as opposed to a fraction. So integrity is a state of wholeness, a state of completeness. We are who we say we are. We do what we say we will do. And true repentance, without any excuses, is the way we live with integrity after we've failed. We repent. So we can always sleep With clean hands, either kept clean by our integrity this week or washed clean by true repentance as we come to him. And that's God's call on our lives. We are called to live out during the week what we promise God on Sundays. Our family got into the habit of watching a a favorite television show together called The Amazing Race. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's a CBS show that tells the stories of, of several teams as they race around the globe. The winner gets $1 million. They're teams of two. The interesting thing about this is that the race reveals the character of the participants as they go through these experiences together. And some of the participants lie and cheat to try and win the prize, while others show integrity like that displayed by Euchenna and his wife Joyce, probably the year we started watching it, 2005. Euchenna and Joyce were on the final leg of their race, racing for the million dollars, because each leg people get eliminated, and they'd made it to the final leg. But they had to start with no money on this final leg going around to the next place on the globe, because they'd lost it all in the previous parts of the race. So they threw themselves to the mercy of strangers, asking for money or rides to get from place to place and to complete the tasks. They managed to hire a cab while they were on their way to the final destination the winning site they hired this this cab but the fare exceeded the amount of money that they had to pay for the cab so Euchenna told the cabbie, he said look we don't have enough to pay you but we'll pay you when we get to our destination and the cabbie said that's fine and so they arrived just a few yards from the finish line in fact right through that gate was the finish line one million dollars they were in first place all they'd do was run through that gate and collect their prize but they didn't have enough money to pay the cabbie and Euchenna said no I made a promise to him we've got to pay the cabbie Joyce wanted to run through. She said, look, well, let's run through. We'll get the money, and then we'll come back and pay the guy. We're getting a million dollars, for crying out loud. No, Euchenna said, I made a promise. We've got to pay him. They offered him wedding ring. He said, no, I don't need rings. I need money. So they started going around to people and begging once again. And if anybody said you shouldn't be doing this by begging, they said, very politely, thank you very much we appreciate your thoughts they could see the next contestants arriving rob and amber and though that particular team had cheated their way and lied their way through the competition and they were within sight of the finish line and it looked like for all their integrity they were going to lose the competition to these cheaters. Finally, somebody gave them $10. The cabbie said, that's enough. And they ran to the finish line and won the race. They made a decision. They wanted to win the race, but they wanted to win it with integrity. Now, if in the world somebody can decide to live that way, how much more are we as Christians, right? We're running a race too. Will we run it with integrity? Or will we become like so many living in hypocrisy? God calls all of us as Christians to run the race of life with integrity. So let's live what we say To God today. Father, we're here in this room, this church, and we come here and we make commitments to follow you and to obey you. And we're sincere, and yet so often we fail. Cleanse us as we come to you in true repentance today. And say, yes, we wrong you, Lord. And we want to live right by you this week. And then give us the strength to live right. That we might live lives of integrity. So that we are who we say we are. And people see that you are making a difference in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.